Jonathan. How's it going? Hi, Karis. Good afternoon. I'm great. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing really, really well, and I'm doing even better because we're getting ready to have like a fantastic conversation. And it's so funny, I opened by saying, hi, Jonathan, because I'm so used to calling you Jonathan. But in fact, I should say, well, good afternoon, Dr. Edwards. <laughs> because what have you done that I am just so proud of is that you completed your PhD in social work. Is that right? Social welfare. Yes. Ah, amazing. Amazing. I bow down before you. Congratulations. Well, the feeling is mutual and it's great to have made that accomplishment. It's also greater to know that there are great people who don't require titles. And this is something that I did for my personal growth and my academic curiosity. So um, it still sounds surprising to be called Dr. Edwards. It's sort of the luxury that keeps on giving. Yeah, I thought I would do it at least once. Now I'm going to go back to calling you Jonathan. Okay, so because that's how, of course, I, how I know you. We were also talking a little bit about your story. So rather than me do a very long introduction of people, um, sometimes I like people to introduce themselves. And you shared something with me that you wrote, and I really found it just very, very moving. Would you mind sharing that again? And and I'm okay if you want to read it directly because it was so powerful. Oh, thank you so much. And and on the topic of unicorns, um, what makes me a unicorn? Because that term has been used and I have differing feelings about it. Sometimes I'm good with it. Other times I question it. In this context, it feels, um, it just feels really powerful. And so Uh, In thinking about what makes me a unicorn, what I wrote was, because I really didn't want to forget this, is that I think that feeling of being a unicorn began around seven years old, riding my bicycle much farther from home than I was supposed to. I've always been an adventurer, and I think anything I might say about the illness experiences that I've also had in my life, what that will reveal is that these were the times when my sense of adventure was suspended. I then go on to write a little bit about recovery and how recovery for me has been rediscovery. Uh, The pain may have continued, but the mold of suffering was broken. And I think about being on my bicycle again, you know, breaking that mold of suffering, regardless of what's going on, perhaps by giving myself the permission to heal while also embracing imperfection. Wow. Wow, that's beautiful. Embracing imperfection. I think a lot of us struggle with that because we strive so hard for perfection. And especially as people of color, uh, we feel like at least, okay, I'm imposing that on other people. But for me, I always feel like people are expecting me not to achieve. So I work harder and harder to almost overachieve to break that sense of imperfection, not because of illness, but because of outward expectations. I don't know. How do you, how do you feel about that? Um, do, you, do you see that as something that you have concern about as a Black man? I do um, in, in varying aspects. I know like growing up, having two parents who I say self-educated because they didn't have the privilege of going to college at 17 and 18, but more or less went to school as adults, Mom went to school when my father watched the five of us. Uh, They both ended up with master's degrees. I believe my mother had a second master's degree. Uh, She has a second master's degree. And so I think the pressure, if you will, that I felt from my parents, I actually had an adverse reaction to that. And I think I underachieved and I was told as Mm. much. Um, So that's certain that, that came up for me. When you talk about being a black man, I think 
the perfection comes into play when I realize that I don't have that same privilege of responding to upsetting situations as, say, a white person would or an Asian person would. But I know my Asian friends also say that they're not, you know, that they're not allowed to show their emotions either. You know, mm-hmm. we're all kind of model minorities. You know, we're, we're renowned for bearing pain and, and having these unbreakable backs. But if we express anger, something's wrong, we're dangerous, we're unruly, and folks are scared. So that's been one of my recent realizations that I really wrestle with is how do I give my voice room to breathe when something different is expected of me to be quiet, to be docile, to agree with stuff and to just go along with things. And that's just not me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So how, as you've come into finding that voice or using that voice, because you've you've had it and you're using it, how have you used it both in, um, in, in your work as a social worker, as well as advocating for the peer movement? Well, certainly not in the sense of making up misfortunes. And what I mean by that is when I first came into the movement, it became really clear to me that a lot of my experience didn't line up with the things that I was advocating against or advocating for, such as um, a clean environment, uh, a clean, caring, comfortable environment where one could heal. You know, so when I was hospitalized, and I've had several hospitalizations because of my depression uh, in my early adulthood, one thing I can say is that I never remember being in a squalid condition. So even though I carried a lot of shame and confusion and pain around sort of dealing with what people label mental illness or depression or setbacks in my life, um, when I started working for um, um, the hospital system that I worked for, and I went into some of these facilities and I saw the conditions where people were expected to recover, to heal and possibly thrive. I was so turned off and I figured that my reaction to all that was going to, I needed to contrast that against the privilege that I had, even as a person who was confused and in pain. Um, And I became very, very motivated to, help people, to support people, to create options for themselves, because this was just not going to fly, you know, Mm -hmm. um, dirty facilities, lack of art supplies, disrespect, you know, low expectation Mm -hmm. of recovery outcomes. And I was angry. And when I was hired for my first job, I was asked, why didn't I talk about my hospitalization when I came into the job interview? And I just said, Mm -hmm. well, I'm going to answer this and I'm not going to get this job. What I said was, well, I thought I was on a job interview. We clearly understand that I'm here partly because of my lived experience, but I also don't really have that much to complain about after going in one of these facilities and seeing Mm -hmm. where people, you know, how people have to live. And I was told, well, that, you know, that's enough of an advocate that we need to hear. You clearly want to do something about changing the system. You're hired. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really interesting because there have been times where folks want people to be very vocal about their lived experience. First of all, we all have different experiences with our lived experience. Our experience is our experience. No judgment, right? It it, it is what it is. Um, And some of us may have had um, different experiences that were, as you were saying, you know, maybe they weren't, you know, bad conditions. Maybe the treatment wasn't bad. Maybe people supported recovery and maybe everything around, you you know, the person is clean and fine and all that kind of stuff. But um, there's also this other piece around 
um, the role that people have in society and being African-American may also impact how they want to disclose and when they want to disclose, even though the expectation is that they disclose. They don't have to like disclose everything like, ooh, let me open the kimono is one of my friends says. It's like, no, close that kimono. Like, please, could you? Like, I don't need to see the whole like, no. Um, and I never knew what that phrase meant. Now I know what it means. Yeah, close the kimono. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think it's interesting that um, you were able to be true to yourself you know, give an answer that made um, perfectly good sense in the, in the context and also get the job, right? You know, when people ask you, do you work as a social worker or do you work as a, as a certified peer specialist or peer specialist? Again, sort of how, how do you hold those two professions? That's a great question because they don't ask me either. I, I, I was going to say, I think people talk about me behind my back, but um, <laughs> as someone said, you're not that important. They're not doing that. Um, <laughs> actually, I, I fancy myself as a researcher, as an emerging researcher. And so, yes, I have a social work degree. I have social work education. I am trained as a social worker. I have a clinical license. And also, I even though I've never really worked on the front lines as a paid peer professional. I do a lot of peer support work and I'm becoming increasingly more and more proud of that and connected to it, including, and I really want to put in a plug for my colleague and my sister, Celia Brown, who is the Mm -hmm. founder of Surviving Race, a grassroots organization. Um, And in the wake of the pandemic, we stood up a bunch of support groups. Uh, People stepped up and took on these support groups during their own time. And I was asked to do something on self-care. So So uh, for about a year, for about 15 months, we did a Saturday mutual support group called uh, Reframing Crisis, Mm -hmm. um, Peer Support, Self-Care Community. And I consider myself a a true peer supporter in the sense that it's the job that I would do for free, but I'm not going to do it for an institution. (laughs) I'm going to do it in the community. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be passed through, funded, reimbursed, sanctioned. Um, but just done. And mm-hmm. I, I love that whole idea of peer support. So, so pe- yeah, people don't really ask me, they might sort of talk about it more in a macro sense, like, I don't understand how someone could be a social worker and a peer supporter. And mm-hmm. I oftentimes say, I don't either. I just kind of ended up here and I'm making the best of it. Yeah. That's what I yeah. say. <laughs> and I think that's interesting because again, I think this happens in a lot of professions um, where a lot of times people get into the uh, different professions in, in uh, mental health because of their own lived experience of, of a mental health condition or of a family member. But when it's them themselves having that personal lived experience, many people will go into psychology, psychiatry, you know, social work. So that's not unusual. And as peer support starts to enter in traditional systems, if you will, or uh, like community mental health centers, hospitals, et cetera, and we're working alongside those other professions. I think the other professions are starting to ask themselves, especially if they're people with lived experience, I'll hear psychologists say, well, I'm a peer. And I'm like, okay, but what does that mean? Like, you know, what does that mean? Tell me what that means. Um, Are you saying you have lived experience and you're a psychologist and you're operating out of the license of psychology and informing that work with the lived experience you have, that's awesome. And that's great. And you're still operating as a clinical psychologist, or are you saying you're um, operating as a peer supporter and you're not thinking about some of the obligations of a clinical license, um, which may inhibit you of doing certain things that you might do in a um, peer support role. And I think that's where the conversation comes about. 
not so much is it about a particular person, but is it about these professions and how do you, especially for certified peer specialists, how do we understand this as a, um, a profession in and of itself? But um, I do want to go back to something that you were speaking about related to surviving race and, and it's uh, surviving race intersections on injustice, disability and human rights. So how did you find that um, experience and what's going to happen with that um, moving forward? So um, surviving race itself began in 2014, um, right after the death of, uh, or the murder oh. of Eric Garner. Yes, yes. Um, and Thank you. Yes. And, and, and um, we, Celia convened a group of us and we began, you know, organizing around, you know, a response to this and the overarching problem of police violence toward people of color and then our concern of people of color with psychiatric disabilities, psychiatric labels, uh, mental health issues, substance use issues. So, you know, six years later, we're in this pandemic. And so one of the things that Surviving Race did um, beyond sort of like the general organizing framework was to say, how can we support connection during this time when people are going to be disconnected from their resources, from their support? Mutual support groups, um, I think they can work really well when there's a finite number of people there, but that's not to say that all are not welcome. We're always prepared to say, you know, we have got 20 people coming, we probably need to think about having two groups. Right. So, um, you know, we don't know. This, these are unprecedented times. And so um, I think the ability to build something while in flight is amazing, even if we don't have the destination all figured out. We also were talking a little bit about um, uh, people with lived experience, especially people of color and especially men. I think, how do we all know each other and how do you all know each other? I was um, asking you if you knew a few people, I was naming them off and there was this moment of, hmm, I don't know if I know that person. Hmm, yeah, no, I know I don't know that person. How can we work towards, number one, advancing leadership for people of color, particularly uh, men, because I don't see a lot of uh, male leaders who are not white. I just, I just don't, in, in our movement in particular. So how can we a- advance maybe um, opportunities for leadership for um, men of color? And then secondarily, how do we get you all connected. I mean, I know this is one way to do it through a podcast. People can hear the stories of other folks, but what are, what are some other ways do you think? Such an urgent and frightening question, because I think something that you and I talked about recently is, I think there's still this inherent fear to come together, to gather, particularly in spaces that are overseen by dominant cultures. I always think about a situation at work maybe five years ago. I was talking with an accountant and uh, an assistant commissioner, both of whom were gentlemen of color. And it was after hours and we saw these eyes leering at us from, you know, sort of down the corridor. And we jokingly said, oh, we better break this up because there's more than two of us gathered and Mm -hmm. this is not going to bode well. And we laughed, but it's quite sad. And many a truth is said in jest. Um, and sometimes we cover the pain with laughter that mm-hmm. unfortunately um, it's still a reality that not only um, are we suspect, but we're, we, we're suspect of each other. So we mm-hmm. we're suspicious of each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's really ingrained that sort of keeps us apart. 
and, you know, the divisiveness, you know, the divide and conquer theory, that there's still a lot of fear around coming together. And I think when we get caught up in our individualism, we certainly are not going to be able to come together. I think when we think about the good of the community, that might be more of a driving force in bringing us together. That's the best way that I can say that. Yeah, yeah. And I think we still have to remember to, well, and first, I'm going to start with exactly what you were saying about when when two or more gather and they're they're black folk or people of color. Uh, we start to worry about who's who's looking and how they're looking at us. And if it looks a little suspect, you know, it's disperse, disperse, you know, and everybody go their separate ways. And I think sometimes we need to just sit with, okay, you guys look uncomfortable, be uncomfortable. We're going to continue to meet, you know, and continue to have our conversation. But also I think um, the other thing that I've struggled with, especially in a leadership role, and I, I'm very much like one of uh, my um, other guests, Dr. Sherelle Bellamy, where, you know, lift is as you climb, where I like to bring up people in leadership as well. It's not just about me. It's about everybody else who climbs up with me or I can bring up into leadership and other, other roles. Um, but there's this thing called the crab theory. And I don't know how many people are aware of how what happens when you put crabs in a pot. They try to save themselves and they forget about all their brethren <laughs> that are down there in the pot. And I think that's something that has really been very prevalent in our communities of, of color is each man or woman for himself and forgetting to reach back and ensure that everybody can get out of the pot with you. You just want to save yourself and get out of the pot. And I think we could do much better about figuring out ways to uh, support leadership, especially when we see gaps in who leaders look like and who they represent. You know, any ideas there and, and, and things that we could do there is going to be critically important. Yeah. And beyond just helping someone to get where they deserve to be is helping them to sustain themselves when they're there. Yes. And I think about it with my, my sisters who um, have moved into leadership positions and just saying, I'll take your call whenever I can. Like if I have to run to the bathroom and take your call just to say I'm here. I mean, I think support is a lot more simpler than we imagine it to be. It's not just, well, I'm going to be there every second of the day and I'm going to do this, you know, so methodically. It might just be the willingness to say, you know, I got you. I hear you. Yes. If you call me, I will listen. Do you want to have dinner? You want to grab a cup of coffee? Because I mm-hmm. think to be heard um, and to truly know that we're being heard is one of the greatest gifts and greatest forms of support is being heard. Yes. Yes. I always say there, there are two things that happen in being heard is, and they're the same letters, but different words, but they're the same letters. I guess that's a palindrome is listen and silent. And sometimes very odd for me, but I do it not in a podcast, it would be a little interesting, but um, is I'm silent so I can fully listen and be present for someone. I couldn't agree with you more. And such an important point for people to walk away with is that supporting people so that they can be as successful as they are able in leadership positions is the most important. I always say getting into college is one thing, getting out of college is another. I used to work in college admissions for many years of my life. And so it was all about getting into college. And I, and I would tell uh, students and parents that getting in is one thing and maybe the easier thing, the harder thing is getting out with your college degree. So that's really what we want to look at. And I would say the same for leadership is you know, having the role is one thing, having um, support and the KSA's knowledge, skills, abilities, and I'll add support needed 
to be effective in that role is a completely another matter. And we have an obligation to help people with that too. Yeah. um, If I may, I don't know how much time we have left, but I just want to briefly mention some work that uh, I've embarked on with several of my colleagues, um, three women of color. We went through uh, PhD programs around the same time. One of us is uh, Latinx and the other uh, identifies as a Japanese American. And then myself and fourth person um, identify as, as Black American. And we are actually putting together an article on academic mentoring and peer support among doctoral students of color um, mm. as sort of a response to our own experiences. Uh, one of those um, other three individuals is someone I went, I went through the entire doctoral program with. And we went everywhere from three-star restaurant to the basement of Wendy's on 34th Street, after class, after statistics, to talk, to decompress, to hold each other accountable, to get through this program together. And now we understand that we need to share some of those very simple, non-scientific ways of supporting one another Mm -hmm. with other people. And to talk about feeling like an imposter in the academy, Mm. Um, you know, feeling, what do we do when... um, there's a microaggression that comes up in a class and everyone wants to deny its existence and, and to silence it. And, and how do we respond? And for myself, particularly as a black man, you know, a black gay man, a black gay man who has dealt with substance use and mm-hmm. mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm already kind of feeling like, do I have the right to speak up about an injustice or an affront or a slight? Because remember, I have to appear to be a certain way or people are going to doubt me. So there are all these demons just circling about. Mm -hmm. um, And I feel like I have to be the air traffic controller for all this (laughs) negative energy. Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That is a job. And who wants that job? Right. But you have, you're exactly right. It doesn't pay enough. It doesn't, doesn't doesn't pay pay at all. Like what the heck. Right. And if the pay that the, the, the toll that it takes is a very high price to pay, I think is one way to think about it too, but you're exactly right. And I think this is the part that people miss. And I've been coaching um, peer leaders, executives, really what they are is they have executive positions. And this is the biggest struggle is what is the expectation of me as a leader and am I an imposter? Is what's happening really real? And we and I have to help people understand, first of all, a lot of people ask that question of themselves, whether they have lived experience or not. I think this is sort of what happens when you get in leadership positions, when people are looking to you, people are looking at you. And oddly, in this world, people are waiting for you to make a mistake. People aren't waiting for you to actually be great. <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, let's see when they're going to make a mistake so we can jump on that versus, um, you know, being able to say, wow, look at their greatness. But um, in the coaching role, I find very much that I have to help people kind of process through what's reality, what isn't reality. And, you know, when, when am I an imposter when I'm, I'm not an imposter and remind themselves, well, who are you and how did you even get to be here? What your actions speak way louder than anything so if somebody is denigrating your work, what, what has your work been before? And reminding um, yourself that sometimes it's about the other people. It's really not about you at all. But uh, it's really hard when you have lived experience because we've been told there's something fundamentally wrong with us, quite frankly. Yeah. 
that we're imagining we're overtired are we upset about something we're not dealing yeah. with but did we yeah. take our meds uh did we get <laughs> yeah. out of sleep are we eating the right things yeah while you look at me devouring pizza you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. after my mom died people said i was moody i was like you think but of course i was yeah <laughs> If I wasn't moody, it would have been like, oh, she's not even moody. She's not even having any emotion. She's not it's in like touch you with reality. Yeah. It's like you can't, you can't win. It's either I'm too much or I'm too little and then I'm nothing. And then it's like, oh, she's just like, she's like a robot. It's like, oh, I just can't. So that's when I realized, okay, I have to know myself and not worry so much about what other people think about me. So um, having, those, having those support groups and having those um, peer groups are critical. I think a lot of times what can happen with people of color in particular is that when we need extra support, and it may not even be extra support, it's just support, period. I need to talk to someone or be in a group of people who are going through what I'm going through so that we can just do that reality checking and make sure we're okay. When that happens, a lot of times people might not accept to be in that group because they feel like "Mm, people are going to perceive me as less than because I need that support. When in fact, everybody needs that support. I mean, have you ever had that kind of experience where there may be concern that you have this peer group and people see the peer group as, well, see, those people of color need that. We don't need that. Yeah. So you're talking about the people who have that perception are people who are not in the group, right? Yes. Like maybe my, maybe my, like, as they call them, the normies, the, the normal friends who don't have problems. <laughs> a good girlfriend yeah. of mine used to say the perfects, you know? Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. Well, int- I, I, one example I can give is a, a very, very dear friend of mine was in my, uh, my library once. And it was actually my other bedroom, my library and mm-hmm. saw my um, 12 step self-help books and said, wow, you know, you've been at this for a while. You probably don't need this anymore. And I said, well, you know, that's just the thing is that I keep them on the shelf to remind me of the tools that I have found that could help me to be who I am today. I think for myself, I may not wear the t-shirt every day that says I'm on my way to a support group, but I don't have time to ask as much permission as I used to. And Mm -hmm. asking permission doesn't literally mean do you still like me if I go to a support group, but just even that subconscious checking in with people for approval around the things that I need to do to take care of me. I wouldn't say that I'm impervious to criticism or that my thin, my skin is really, really thick, but I would certainly say that I think I'm doing a lot less checking in with people for approval around the things that I do, Mm -hmm. nor do I feel like I need to even say too much about it because I think by inundating others with what I'm doing in a tacit way, if you will, is sort of checking in for approval. Like, you know, there's a saying like there are programs that are of attraction, not promotion. Yeah. So I don't need to promote what I do for my well-being. If you want to know about it, I'll share it with you, but I don't have to parade around and announce it because different things work for different people. And Mm -hmm. even being a person in long-term recovery from substance use and alcohol, I understand that alcohol works for some people and I ain't going to judge you. Mm -hmm. I have nothing to say about it unless I see you like walking in front of a car and I'm going to try to help you get out the way, but um, different things work for different people and Mm -hmm. I'm happy for you. I just know that 
that ain't working for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I love, I love how you said, you know, you're not going to ask approval or you don't need to ask approval anymore, seek approval for things that you need for yourself. And I actually think that's the way it works for people where we don't know what they're doing. So I think a lot of the assumption is, I, I think it's again, that sort of double standard about ourselves or that standard about ourselves that even it's been imposed on us that we're less than. And so we're less than, so we need this. But when you look to people who are in the majority, they're over there going to support group. They're over there getting the tutor. They're over there getting the support. They're just not like wearing it as a label on their forehead that that's what they're doing. And we perceive they're not doing it. And then, uh, so I think that's also the little, um, I say, pull, pull behind the, the green curtain. And when you pull behind the green curtain, you'll see majority cultures doing the same thing we are. They're just not announcing it. And we, we don't have to announce it either. For some, it's an entitlement. For others, it's a question mark. Like, why are you doing this versus, oh, you know, I'm just doing it. Yeah. So I think that also kind of like parallels with like privilege paradigms. Like we don't question some and we beat up others. Yeah, it's just yeah. kind of- <laughs> but I do need a T-shirt that says I'm not asking for approval. I do need that T-shirt. <laughs> no approval needed, uh, meaning I'm going to go out and do what I need to do for me and not worry about the approval of others. I think that's very, mm-hmm. very. Uh, N A N. What's that? N A N. There's your palindrome. No approval needed. <laughs> no approval needed. Okay, I think yeah. I need that shirt. Um, and um, is there any other last thing that you would like to say about? Um, you know, maybe advice to people, especially, you know, uh, folks of color, men of color, and um, entering into this field and or seeking um, and looking for leadership, leadership support in this field. Well, before you got to the leadership part, and I don't know why I'm like separating that out, but this is going to sound extremely corny, but um, I have to say, like in my recovery journey, and once again, I'm going to be endorsing a product, but Um, I was in a damp basement of uh, the type of program, I think we call it a psychosocial clubhouse. And I was part of a speaker panel. This is going back to 2002. And I remember being in this damp basement where the program was cited and seeing this, you know, red book with a faded black and white photo. And it was Mary Ellen Copeland on the cover of the wellness recovery action plan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was like, Oh, this book, it's interesting. I mean, I, the title grabbed me. I'm sure she didn't think it was the best photo of herself, but it was like, <laughs> oh, who is this woman? She's really interesting. And I opened it up and I saw like worksheets and explanations. And I immediately got the feeling that like someone didn't write this as a prescription. They wrote it as an option. They wrote it as, hey, I once said something about taking myself up as a project. And then the person said, is that how you see people who have mental health issues as projects? I said, no, that was a name I was using for myself. I would never refer to anyone else as a project. Mm-hmm. So you also have to be careful not to let people put words in your mouth. But when I opened it up and realized that this was a tool that gave me the ability to chart my course and to go off course and to follow course and to vary and to veer and to do whatever I wanted to do that. I had that agency to arrange things, even if they didn't turn out perfectly, that I was in charge of my own life. And I always feel the connection with that book with rap um, Mm -hmm. because it's a really empowering tool that you can fashion in any way that you want to create your path. That's the best way that I can say it. And so Mm -hmm. I think in closing, I would just say I'm big on worksheets and tools and templates and exercises, 
we can make them for ourselves or we can, you know, check in with our peers around, Hey, what, you know, what did you use? Like we don't have to, you know, use the five factor personality model from the psychology book to Mm -hmm. understand ourselves in our entirety. We can say, okay, that's one frame of reference, but you know, I may want to look at the, uh, the recovery wheel, as I call it, you know, the definition of recovery and those different uh, I think there are 12 of them, you know, and I may Mm -hmm. want to define my experience through that lens. Yeah, that's really powerful. Another, you know, powerful statement from Jonathan Edwards around, um, you know, thinking about different ways for us to have agency and um, to get to know ourselves. And um, that's so powerful to uh, use different types of templates and worksheets and even to take those like I'm a person who, um, you know, even with things like like rap, I had to draw it. Um, and I am a woman of words, clearly, um, <laughs> and I do like to write as well. However, when I was, um, you know, utilizing things like rap or, or using those very techniques, I found that drawing was really a way to help me articulate who I was and what I needed and how I needed it and when I needed it. Um, and I could update that as, as much as I wanted. So, so it's a great, great way for us to think about uh providing uh, good guidance to folks as we end our time together. And Jonathan, I'd like to thank you for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody remembers to also join in next week. Thank you so much, Karis. This has really been a delight. I appreciate it. Yay.